The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Hey, my name is Jeremy Wilson. I work here at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters. Uh, I work as the food service manager. You're welcome, right? Thank you. Thank you. That, and yeah, so there's going to be some things that happen today. I'll like probably make a joke or something, and then you guys in turn laugh. Even if it's not funny, just laugh for me. See? There, you did it. You did good. Um, just kidding. Uh, I'm married to Jenna. She's awesome, if any of you guys know her. Um, and we have a son named Lee. You've probably met him, if not seen him. He's about this tall, and he runs around. He's blonde-haired, and he, he will shoot at you. Um, and those of you who have responded well to him by, like, pretending to die, thank you. Um, that was very nice of you for humoring him. He's having the greatest weekend of his life. Um, and we've been here for about two years. Two years tomorrow, actually, is the day that we moved up here, that we signed papers to move into our home. Um, so enough about me. You're here this afternoon to talk about worldview apologetics. Um, and before I like, get into the definition of worldview and all that, I want to see, and this is a risk, but I want to see if anyone here knows what worldview is. Does anyone want to? Sub- yes. Yeah, and you can use the word. I mean, it's, it's really, you can say it's the way you view the world, right? It's a pretty easy answer to that question. Uh, and, and, and it's not a physical view. It's, I mean, it's not like, okay, I see I'm colorblind. And so the way I see the world is, I'm not actually colorblind. I'm using that as an example. But the way I see the world is in different shades of blue or different shades of green. It's a philosophical view, right? Um, it, a few months ago, it, well, okay, and before that, everyone has a worldview, right? Everyone sees the, lens, sees the world through a lens, and they may not know their worldview. It may not be well-formed, but they have one regardless, right? You have opinions about different questions about life. Maybe you've spent some time thinking about them. Maybe you haven't. A few months ago, I started to notice uh, in this eye, I started to lose some vision, it, and I was told that comes with getting older, um, and so I went to the ophthalmologist in town and I sat down and I looked through the little thing and he looked at my eyes and he said, well, your left eye's perfect. There's no problems with it. It's 20-20. I said, thank you. Um, and then he said, but your right eye, you're having a lot of trouble seeing out of and your right eye dominant. So you're seeing double. It's getting harder to see for you. Um, so he hooked me up with a pair of glasses. He said, the lens that I'm giving you can't get you to 20-20 vision. So he couldn't get me a single lens good enough to help me see 2020 out of this eye. He said, but hopefully over time, looking through that lens, your brain will adjust and you'll be able to see better. I'm not wearing glasses today, as you can see, because it didn't adjust very well. And I got really tired of, like, if I'm going to see blurry anyways, I don't want to see blurry through a pair of glasses. Um, and you could probably see the point that I'm getting at is that I need to go back to the eye doctor. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I, I, I'm getting at the point that I'm using the lens thing as the idea of the way we view the world, the lens in which we view the world. Uh, the, you know, a worldview might affect your political choices, your relational choices, what kind of job you would be willing to work, how you might raise your kids, 
what companies you're willing to do business with. We live in a very like woke world where like if someone makes a mistake, we don't want to do business with them anymore, right? I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily right, but your worldview influences that. What you think about the world influences what you're willing, what car you're willing to drive. The list goes on and on. And while these, the worldview informs these minute decisions, our worldview is built up of very big building blocks. The foundation and framework for how we view all those little things can be made up of some larger questions about the world. Today, for the sake of our conversation today, um, we're going to be looking at just a few questions that build worldview. But before we get into that, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord that he be with us, help us learn, um, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for today. Um, Thank you for this weekend that we get to come together, have fun, learn, um, study, study your word, and be transformed by it. God, I pray that you would um, help if I say anything silly or against your word, that it would fall on deaf ears. Um, And anything from you, would we take it to heart? We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so four questions that we're going to use today to build our foundation and framework for worldview. All right, question number one, how did we get here? Question number two, why are we here? Question number three, where do we get objective morality? And question number four, where are we going? And here's the deal with these four questions. They're not exhaustive. So, uh, you know, I made a joke with a few guys earlier. I said, before you leave today, you will know every worldview to ever exist and you'll have a complete understanding of all of them and everything that there is to do with worldview. Um, but that's not true. And, I, and I'm sorry, guys, you'll have to get your money back from Snowbird if that's what you actually thought you were getting. But what you are getting is just a snapshot. I want you guys to get an idea of what it's like to engage worldview. And we're going to use those four questions. You could, look, you could probably go to the almighty Google and look it up online and see, like if you type in worldview or like what is worldview, you might get... 30,000 articles, and one says, here are the four questions. Another says, here are seven questions. Another says, here are 19 questions that you have to have for your worldview. Um, And so, again, I'm not claiming that everyone in the world has these four questions, that everyone who's ever existed has looked at these four questions. If you know your worldview, you're always going to go to these four questions. But I will say that these four questions need to be answered in some way cohesively to have a well-built worldview. Like you, these questions have to be thought about and processed, and that's what we're hoping to do today is at least go through those. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to go through these questions. I'm going to give brief answers. I, I'll admit I have a Christian worldview. Um, some of you might also have that. Um, and, but we're going to be looking at three different worldviews, and these are hypotheticals, other than the third one being the Christian worldview. Two of them are hypotheticals. What someone who's, who claims to be an atheist might believe about these questions and what maybe someone who just claims to be a deist might believe about these questions. And we're going to go through this really quickly and give a brief answers to each one of these. So we'll start with question number one, how did we get here? So how do we get here? What I mean by that is what is the origin of life? Where did the universe come from? I'm sure this is a question that everyone in the world, like over the age of eight, has thought, maybe younger, has thought about. And and maybe they have a satisfactory answer to it. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's too much to think about and they don't want to answer it. But to build a worldview, it's the foundation building block of building a worldview. An atheist might believe that we're here by accident, that the universe was made by chance, that doesn't matter the odds of the universe just popping into existence within enough time no matter how low the odds will 
pop just right there into existence. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, so, but they might say, so now here we are. Or a deist or a moralistic therapeutic deist, that's a cool word to say like someone who believes that there might be a God out there and they just kind of spun everything into motion. They want us to be good people. Um, they might believe that there's a creator who got everything started, who wants us generally be good people, but is going to fade into the background until you really need them, until you pray to them. That, that's a, that is a more common worldview than you would realize. People might actually say that they're Christians even and hold more of that worldview. And that's why we want to look at these questions very seriously so we can figure that out. What do we believe? We believe Genesis 1 and 2, that there is a creator, that he by his own power spoke the world into being, and he has always existed and has need, by definition, needs no creator prior. And then he got it started and he had every intention to be involved in his creation and he still is. So then question number two, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Uh, what is the chief end of man? An atheist who is totally honest with the implications of their first answer to the first question might, and I say this because I'm not an atheist, I can't answer this, and, and every atheist might believe something a little bit different of this, but if they were totally honest with the implications of their first answer, they would say there is no reason. We're just here floating on a rock through space. And at the end of the day, you're going to cease to exist, and that's it. Or what's a lot more prevalent in, in today's culture, specifically Western culture, is we create our own meaning. And that's when you start to get into another set of philosophy, of more existentialism, excuse me, existentialism and believing that you have to make it good. What you feel makes it real. I say that a lot as a joke, but that's what people say, and, and they make up their meaning. Why do we exist? Well, what does life mean to you? A deist might say that the meaning of life is to just be kind to each other and do what makes you happy, because God wants you to be happy, right? That's the whole point. We believe, very simple, short answer, that the meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question number three, where do we get objective morality or moral law? And, and the clarifying word here in this question is objective morality, right? There is morality. There's no denying that. People believe that killing someone is wrong. You've got far out there exceptions of psychopaths and things like that, but as the general consensus, people believe that murder is wrong. People recognize that being dishonest is not right. You have no, you know, a thief with a worldview, someone who has a worldview like a, a thief, you, you'll see how quickly their worldview breaks apart when someone steals from them. They're not happy with that. So we, we know that that's not right. So then we, we have to answer that question honestly. And an atheist might believe that moral law exists because we have to have it. That all those years ago, as people started to try, like tribalize and form societies and get together, that in order to li live peacefully with each other, they had to create laws, had to create structure, and then they had to raise those children, the children that they would have in those laws so that they could grow up and become productive members of society. A de so, and then a deist probably believes that this morality comes from whatever deity happened to spin the world in motion, kind of made it intrinsically in our heart. They're not, I mean, they're not far off, in that, what we believe is that God has given us moral law, and he has a standard that we have not met, and that that's why we need Jesus. And then question number four, where are we going? 
or what happens when we die? This is the question that I think people like to deal with a lot less because no one likes to talk about death. That's why we've made up different words to refer to death. We have said someone's passed away. Someone's moved on to a better place. They've passed on. And so we, death is a scary, hard word to deal with. But in your building your worldview, it's critical. We all wonder what happens after we die. And if you're a Christian, you have an answer for that. And, and you know, the atheists have an answer. Deists have an answer. Hindu have an answer. But do you actually believe that answer? An atheist believes that nothing happens. I mentioned that earlier. That when we die, that's it. So make the most of your life now. YOLO, as the kids say. A moralistic therapeutic deist might believe that we all go to a place called heaven that this unknowable God made just because, unless, of course, you're Hitler or something, then you probably don't go to heaven. And then we believe that Jesus is preparing a place for us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. And those who turn, repent, and believe in Jesus will reign with him for all eternity. But those who don't will be in hell eternally separated from God. That last bit there is the bit that often people don't want to face either. That when you're building your worldview, you have to face the entire scriptures. Like that, that is a true thing. And that's why we have hope in Jesus. So again, let's review these four questions. Again, these are four questions that are the foundation and framework for building a worldview. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where do we get objective morality? And where are we going? And the sad reality is that some people haven't taken the time to consider the answers to these questions. And they don't necessarily inform their day-to-day decisions. Um, We live in a culture and society that's become lazy-minded, that are lacking the will and the desire to critically think about what we believe. Why think when others can think for you? The news is always putting on the next news story. I don't really watch the news, but I know some people do. Or, or social media. There's always someone who, on your screen who adds another opinion of what, you, what opinion you should have about X, Y, or Z. There's another person over and over and over scrolling to tell you what you should think about what's happening in culture right now. It can be easier Instead of thinking about these questions for yourself, it can be easier to take a book like Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris and say, okay, Sam's already done, and and put it on your bookshelf, not really read it, and say, Sam's already done the thinking for me. He's already told the Christians that they're wrong, so I don't have to think about it. Or it can be just as easy to take Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. Read some highlights that make you feel good, put it on your bookshelf, and say, God wants me to be happy, which he does, but he's missing it. Or, watch out, it can be just as easy to take books by guys like R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, Francis Schaeffer, to read them, have them on your shelf, and say, again, they've done this thinking for me. And guys, don't get me wrong. That sounds like a pretty, like I'm being a little aggressive or brutal with the statement, but it's the truth for a lot of the Western world. And the authors that I just mentioned, those guys, I read them. I, I, in fact, at the end of this, I'm going to give you a few books to read. So I'm not saying read books. Those, those are excellent resources. But the, none of them is more excellent than God's word. When forming your worldview, that's what you want to pull it out of. Not the opinions of R.C. Sproul. He's, a, he, he's in heaven, praise the Lord, but he's dead. Jesus is alive right here. He can help you form that worldview right now. 
My hope for you all is that you would not be one of those people who just uses other resources, who doesn't critically think about their own worldview. My hope for you is that you would critically consider what you believe and why you believe it. The definition of an apologetic is a reasoned argument and justification of something. And often, we need, that, we need an apologetic more for ourselves than we do for arguing with other people. You, you see, every Christian at some point in their life, often multiple points in their life, are going to deal with doubt. And there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is when you reject Jesus and you walk away. Doubt is when you struggle with it generally. And every Christian is going to doubt. And you even see now so many people deconstructing the faith. That's a word, that's a hot ticket word right there that you often hear. And I can't say for certain because I'm not these people, but I would bet that in many of those scenarios, those people who have deconstructed and walk away from Jesus have either taken their eyes off of Jesus. If you were on summer staff with uh, Snowbird last summer, we walked through for about four weeks of setting your eyes on Jesus in an age of deconstruction. Or, so either they've taken their eyes off Jesus or their worldview to begin with was very poorly built, or both. So again, I ask you guys to assemble your worldview with Jesus and his word so that even if you know everything there is to know about worldview or apologetics, if your worldview is not centered on Jesus, it's going to fall apart. It's going to fail. So I'm going to read you guys a verse out of Colossians or passage. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is what you build your worldview out of. Though That's where you start with your worldview, is in the scriptures that you point you back to Jesus. So as you're answering these questions for yourself, if you haven't yet, maybe you have, as you're trying to figure that out, build it on that foundation, the foundation of Christ. So at this point, um, we're going to shift a little bit. You know, I, I'm going to go in a different direction than I initially thought I would go um, with for today. And we're going to move from, I gave you like this really, really brief uh, definition of worldview, questions you have to answer about worldview if you're going to have a cohesive one. And what I mean by cohesive is those questions, you can't just individually answer each one of them. You, they have to be intertwined with each other. They have to make sense at the end. The, number two can't contradict number one. If you have some reason to life, uh, like an atheist, if they have some, uh, the meaning of life as X, Y, or Z, but in reality, there is no meaning to life because we just exist here by accident. Like that doesn't work for a cohesive worldview. So that's what I mean by cohesive. Um, but we're going to shift from there to look at 
worldview in evangelism, why worldview is important for you guys to know and why it's important to be able to identify other people's worldviews. And I'm running a little short on time. We started, you know what? The next breakout's not till 2.30. I've got 40 minutes. Just kidding. Um, but so we might go a little bit over. I'm sorry if you were wanting to go ride the three-man swing in the rain. We're gonna go just a tiny bit over. Um, all right, so they did it. Good job. All right, so <laughs> one of the greatest examples in Scripture that I've seen, and, and maybe you guys have some good ones too, that I've seen of, some, of, of someone identifying worldview, using the understanding of worldview to evangelize, is in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was at Mars Hill in Athens. So if you have a Bible with you, feel free to go ahead and turn to that. Um, and we're just going to run, run through how does Paul use his understanding of other people's worldview in order to evangelize to them. So Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16, and I'm going to read starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul wasn't expecting to make this stop in Athens. But just before he got to Athens, he was in Thessalonica. He's preaching the gospel. He made some people really, really mad in Paul fashion. That's pretty normal. And he got ran out of Athens before the rest of his crew could catch up. Or they sent him ahead. And he stopped, or not in Athens, excuse me, ran out of Thessalonica. So he stops in Athens to wait for them to catch up. And while he was there, he was struck by how many idols were all over the place. Everywhere you go, you could see an area devoted to this god, an area devoted to this idol. And, and again, in Paul fashion, he couldn't help but to start preaching the gospel. And of course, he started first with the Jews. He went to the synagogue because that was his normal thing. Every city he visited, he would go to the synagogue first, and then he would go to the Gentiles. And so when he went to the, after he went to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace to preach to the rest of the city. And he caught the ear of a few of the philosophers of the day. Uh, Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers were at odds with each other, so they're not like buddies. They had different philosophies that kind of butted heads a little bit, but both of them saw like, okay, who's this new joker coming in here trying to tell us something else? We're already arguing with each other. Um, and, they, and they called him a word, the Greek word is spermalagos, or one who picks up seed. We translated it babbler because one who picks up seed doesn't quite register with us. So I think the translator did, did a great job there. But there's actually some context there that you kind of miss when you think of one who picks up seed. They're referring, okay, so I have chickens. I, I live in Andrews. I have a farm with seven chickens. Yeah, big time. Um, and, and these chickens were kind of forced upon us. Not really. Someone needed to get rid of them, and we said, well, one day we want them, so we got them. And if you watch them, chickens are not smart animals, guys. They're like, they're not the most intelligent. They're not the golden retriever of the avian life or the Australian shepherd of the avian life. They're, they're kind of dumb. Um, and they'll walk around in their coop or in their run or in the yard and they'll just bang their head against the ground they'll just peck at nothing and they're hoping that they get a little bit of food when they do that and but it almost as you're watching them it almost looks like they have they they didn't even realize they just did it like they're not hunting sometimes you can see them hunt they'll like kind of 
scuff up the ground and then try to eat in that dirt, hoping they dug up a grub worm. But the idea is that they're kind of pecking at nothing. So when these guys say Paul is one who picks up seed, they're calling him a chicken, and not in like the scared way, but of like you just, you're just you're peck, peck, pecking at what we believe, at our ideas without any grasp of what we actually think. So they think Paul's just coming in here running his mouth about whatever he thinks and not paying attention to what they might think. And then they're, of course, not paying attention to him. And so it continues in Acts uh, 17, verse 19, and it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So what Paul does here, and I'm going to start talking a little bit faster so I don't go over too much, but what Paul does here is he's starting to stir up enough ruckus. Yeah, while they called him a babbler, they're also in the Athenian culture, they argued and they wanted to hear new things all the time. So they're like, you know what, let's take him to Areopagus. And Areopagus was um, a court that you could probably see from the marketplace and where it sat in the city of Athens, you could probably even look at the... um, uh, the building that built to Athena, Temple of Athena. There it is. That was hard. Um, and, and, and they bring him before this court. And this court in that day had responsibility over a ton of civil issues, but also specifically because the city was so religious that they have a court that would, that would rule over morality and religion of the day. So Paul, they drag him in front of these people and they say, okay, go ahead. You got our attention. Tell us. And so he addresses them and he says, I recognize that you're religious. I see that you believe in some form of creator. You've come to the conclusion at the very least that gods have created everything. So he's identifying their answer to question number one of where do we come from? He's saying, you're, you know, there's gods all around here. But I also see that you admit that you don't quite get it because you're covering your bases by saying this alters to the unknown God that we might be missing. And he uses this understanding of their worldview to continue to preach the gospel to them. And he even then goes one step further and uses their own poets and philosophers in verse 28. If you look at verse 28, those two things he said, he said, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. I'll admit the first time I ever read that, I was like, oh, I wonder what Old Testament passage that is. And, it, and it's actually from their own poets, that they would have, the people of the time would have recognized when he said that. And what he's doing is he's contextualizing the gospel. He's not saying that what they believe, they've got it right. He's not saying, oh yeah, you're poets, this is inspired scripture. But he's kind of saying, okay, call me a babbler. Watch. Like, let me show you what I know. 
about you guys. I'm, I'm not spewing nothing. I'm not peck, peck, pecking. So he continues and, and says, being then, and this is the next verse, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. I imagine he was probably pointing at idols in the area or maybe even pointing at the temple of Athena and says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed on a day which we will, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, those, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul moves from this general revelation perspective. He says, I know what you believe. Like, you, obviously, you recognize that there has to be a creator. But then he, he starts moving to his answer to morality because he moves to judgment. Because the reality is, is you cannot have a system of morality without judgment. If there is no consequence for your actions, there is no morals, and you can do whatever you want. And he brings up the resurrection immediately following that judgment to layer in with hope. If you're an Athenian and the things that Paul was saying about judgment started to click with you, you might start wondering what happens when you die. And what happens? We go to meet our maker. Again, humans fear death. We do because we know it's wrong. And Paul's giving a response to this third and fourth question. He says, what happens when you die? You're going to face judgment. But then he immediately follows up with the resurrection. And unfortunately, Paul didn't get much more opportunity to finish here. Often the reaction to judgment by cultures is outlash and ridicule. Here, they said it, they blamed it on believing in the resurrection. And I'm sure in many ways that that's what it was. But the moment the Areopagus could, they shut him down. And this isn't so different than what we see in the modern day today. The philosophers of today ridicule Christians. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, they all joke and prod and insult anyone who could possibly ever believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead. They think it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter if you're in a polytheistic culture or an atheistic culture. They hate Christianity because it's true. And that's what sin does in our hearts. So Paul was ridiculed for the sake of the gospel, and hopefully we will be too. Hopefully we will be made fun of for what we believe. Because that means we are being faithful to preach it as truth. So in conclusion here, follow Paul's example of how to respond to ridicule from different worldviews. Know yours well. Form yours well. Do your effort and form it using the scriptures so that you know what happens when we die. You know how we got here. You know what morality is, and you know what the meaning of life is. And you build those together to build a cohesive worldview built on Jesus. And when we're insulted and ridiculed for what we believe, don't stop preaching. Paul left Athens and went straight to Corinth and faithfully preached the gospel to a church that really needed it. So again, today's discussion on worldview, the questions, this example of how Paul used it, it's not exhaustive. My hope for you is to just give you an introduction. It probably should have been titled Introduction to Worldview. So you can just get 
a taste of it so you can start to form that for yourself so you can use it to evangelize to others and use it to encourage other believers. So uh, up behind me on the screen, I'm gonna put a few resources here. Um, Again, I say the most critical resource is the scriptures, is the Bible, is the word of God. Start there in building your worldview. But uh, this first one, this first book called What's Your Worldview by James Anderson. Um, James Anderson is a super smart dude. He, he wrote this book. It's a short book. It's only like that big. And he kind of wrote it as a, um, do you guys remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Like as you read through, like you do this and it takes you to this page. It, he wrote it like that. So it's from the perspective of someone who's maybe actually trying to identify their worldview. And you answer the question and say, if you answer this question, you go to this page. Some people really didn't like it. Um, not Christians, people who were non-believers, because um, every time, the way he wrote it is he would essentially say like, okay, that's what you believe, but this is why it's not true. So he did write it as like an evangelistic tool. Um, so know if you're also going to recommend it to someone else, that that's the perspective that they're going to be reading it in. Um, second book, Not a Chance by R.C. Sproul. Um, this book, I understood like 25% of it. So I don't really know why I'm recommending it to you. Um, but R.C. Sproul, He's, he's the man. Um, he's a very, very smart guy. Um, and he, he kind of went toe-to-toe. What, okay, at first, the reason it's called Not a Chance is the way that he wrote it was when someone says, I said it earlier, when someone says the universe was created by chance, uh, nothing is created by chance. And that's what R.C. Sproul's going at, is chance does not have any authority to create anything because chance is an abstract thought a word it's not anything it's not a being that has any power to create anything so he kind of picks on uh people who believe that at first but then he says okay even if i were to go even if i were to understand what you're saying and you were being honest saying that we are here by chance not the universe was created by chance but we're here by chance he kind of picks apart that um worldview and and so i give you that one to just that's that's a good book to start reading and then read for the rest of your life hoping that maybe the day you die you might understand a little bit of it um and the third book, this is my favorite book out of those books. It's called uh, Death of a Guru by Ravi R. Maharaj. Um, it's a super easy read, and it's an autobiography of this guy. Uh, he was a Hindu guy. His dad was what's called an avatar in the Hindu religion, and, um, which essentially means he's made a demonic covenant. But he, what they would call is he's been indwelled by one of their gods, um, and he ends up dying, and it, it, his, his dad does. And um, he go, it's Ravi's life as a, uh, someone who's high up in the Hindu caste system uh, and how he becomes a believer. And then his, uh, when he started to go to evangelize to Westerners, his journey through that and like the things that he saw, it kind of connects the, the total world together and that like he, he shows that the things that we're seeing in the East, these visions we're having about our gods um, and then these drug trips that people were having in the 60s and 70s were doing it was the same demons the same demonic forces it's an incredible incredible book fun read um, and it'll give you a whole another perspective on another worldview in hinduism um, all that being said that's that's all i have for you guys i'll be around for a little bit if any of you guys want to talk or have any questions or if i miss something or if you think i'm wrong um, feel free to come talk to me about it thank you for coming today guys thanks for listening we hope this has encouraged you in your walk with christ Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.